Good morning, Sun Valley Church. So good to be here with you again um, as we gather to worship the Lord together and sing his praises and uh, be encouraged, taught, and challenged by the Word of God. Um, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then our scripture reading will be intertwined with the sermon. So that don't be alarmed. We're not skipping that portion of our service, but um, we'll just be doing a lot of reading in Philippians since this is kind of our wrap-up of that sermon series. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, as we come into your presence here corporately now, having our hearts drawn to you by your greatness, by your love, by our call to be a unified body. Father, we come humbly asking that you would do your work in us, that you would do your work in all your churches that hold up the gospel of Christ, hold up his word. I pray particularly this morning for our sister churches in the Yakima area. We have other like-minded churches who embrace the scriptures, who embrace the Lord of the scriptures. And we, we are desperate that you bless them as well as us. So we pray for Westside, for Harvest, for Restoration, for Tanum and Memorial, that these churches, as they remain faithful to the scriptures, as their pastors and elders and deacons and servants in the church follow you and, and glorify your name in, in their churches and in their daily lives, that you would bless them, that you would cause them to grow in Christ, that they would grow deeper in their understanding of the scriptures and, and of the grace of Christ. I pray that you would be glorified in, in these, our sister churches, and help them grow and, and build up the numbers who attend that hear the gospel preached regularly and faithfully. Father, as we now come to your word, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might see the wondrous things in your law here before us, that our hearts would be soft and our minds receptive, that you would eliminate things that would be distracting to us at the moment, no matter what they are, that you're, by your spirit, would draw our attention and focus to this glorious word of, of Christ that we find in front of us. I thank you for the promise that we have in Scripture that the Holy Spirit teaches us, the Holy Spirit guides us, the Holy Spirit does all these things necessary for life and godliness. And so we, we bring ourselves to you and, and humble ourselves as we sit before your word, asking your Holy Spirit to teach us. And I pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So you'll need a Bible today. Turn it to the book of Philippians, if you haven't already. This is going to be our final sermon in this sermon series on the letter to the Philippian church. We um, got to the end of chapter 4 last week, and I explained to you the idea of saints. But today I want to step back and, and kind of give you a bird's eye view of, of the whole book. Um, and I want you to understand that, that this isn't uh, 
by any means comprehensive. It's taken us a year to be comprehensive. Um, so this is just a review to remind you, to encourage your hearts, to challenge you, to think uh, as the Holy Spirit has desired us to think and the Apostle Paul intended for us to think as he wrote. So let's, oh yes, I want to make sure you have your bulletin open to this little target thing. I'm going to be referring to that a lot and I, I want you to be able to use that. There's a place for notes and you can of course scribble anywhere you want on these things, but uh, these are concentric circles with the center of the target being the gospel and you'll understand how these things work as I work through them. But as you know, God has always communicated with mankind. He began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, walking with them in the garden in the cool of the evening, speaking to them, communing with them. And he desires, he has always desired uh, to tabernacle or to reside with his people, which was the point of his presence in the tabernacle, which is his point now of the Holy Spirit residing in our hearts. He desires that we know him, love him, and fulfill the purpose for which we've been created. God actually wants you to be fulfilled and joyful in your life. When God became a man 2,000 years ago, he did so to reveal very specifically how we can have a re actual relationship with our creator. Uh, while, while he was here on this planet, he taught many things, many of which are recorded in the gospels that we have in front of us. Uh, God's human name, of course, is Jesus, and he came to teach the gospel or the good news. His coming was the gospel. It's the good news. He, he taught how God can forgive sins, reconcile sinners to himself, restore the communion and friendship that he originally designed us to have with God, our creator. He taught that all of this was a result of God's goodness. The reason he came, the reason he loves, the reason he forgives is because he's a good and benevolent God and desires good things for his creation, his people particularly. This whole story is recorded in scripture. God desires that everyone hear that message, the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, which is the story of God's love for his people. As a man, God said in Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20 that this message must be spread around the world to everyone. He told those of us who would believe this message to continue to spread this message by way of priority, prioritizing it in our daily lives. And of course, the Apostle Paul knew this gospel. He knew the commission. He knew that, that the world needed to hear these things. Um, he desired to spread this message of hope to anyone who would listen. His life was about spreading this message of the gospel. The letter to the Philippian church that we've been studying is a result of Paul obeying that commission to go and make disciples. The Philippians believed this gospel. They believed what Paul taught about God, about Christ, about their sin. And so they believed and and because they believe the natural consequence of authentic belief is buying into all that God says, all that Jesus said, including spreading the good news. So they supported Paul's efforts to go and make disciples to as, with as many as possible. At one point in their life, uh, they heard that the apostle Paul had ended up in jail for being faithful to this commission. 
So what did they do? They sent help to encourage him, to support him, to keep the ministry going, even while in prison. And so they sent a man named Epaphroditus with a gift, including at least financial things and probably other things. And he found Paul in Rome. He traveled a long time to get to Rome. He found Paul, and when he arrived in Rome, he gave Paul the report about what was happening back in Philippi. And of course, Philippi was, I think, Paul's favorite church plant. Uh, I think Paul, as he said, that, that they were his joy and crown. He loved them deeply and dearly. But he heard this report from Epaphroditus, and in response to the gift, in response to the report, he writes this letter back to these dear people in Philippi. And Epaphroditus, after a time in, in Rome with Paul, takes this letter back, and it was recorded of course, now for us in history and in the scriptures. And in this letter, he affirms the gospel call. He affirms the need to be participants in this great commission that the God of heaven gave when he was here on this planet. So the great commission, the command to spread the gospel, of course, is something that Jesus said in Matthew 28. I've referenced here now a couple times. Let me read for you particularly what it says. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's the commission. Jesus himself, our creator, said, Go and spread the good news. Go and, and, and create disciples. Make disciples. Make worshipers. Gather worshipers. This is the great commission. The gospel, of course, is the focus of this great commission. Um, we're not going out there with some watered-down version of uh, God is good and God is kind and wonderful and don't worry about anything. No, the gospel is specific. And this is what we have been commissioned to tell our neighbors, our friends, those across the globe. And he said to teach them something specific, all that I have commanded you. And what is it that God commanded us? What is it that Jesus Christ commanded his disciples? He commanded them about the gospel. He taught them about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the need for Christ, and the need for personal response to that message, that gospel message. This is what he commanded them. And then we discover in the life of Christ um, that intimately interwoven into the gospel was God's desire that his creatures be joyful people. So not only are we alerted to the fact that there is a holy God that we must stand before one day, we are alerted to the fact that that God desires us, his creatures, to be a happy people. Why? Because he's a happy God, and we should be like him, right? Jesus said this in John 15, the things that I've spoken to you, all these things I've been teaching you for three years, I've taught you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus came to share the gospel, which is designed to bring joy to us. So if you're a depressed Christian, you are an oxymoron, all right? That shouldn't be the case. Of all people in the world, we should be joyful people. We know our creator. We know our sins are forgiven. We know our future. What else is there? There's nothing. 
We should be overjoyed with life in Christ. Jesus came to bring this joy. At the birth of Jesus, the angels announced joy to the world. Why? Because God showed up. Remember that in Luke 2.10? And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Here's some really good news for you, humans. God has showed up. In the city of David, a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. What good news? So in your little diagram here, I want to show you how this gospel is central to the book of Philippians. It is, it is the assumption, the premise, on which all of Paul's teaching here in this, in this short letter rests. Okay, so let's, let's look at the, the verses that I've listed in this gospel circle. The first is found in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Here we see the, the, the person of the gospel. The gospel is nothing without the person of the gospel, who is Jesus Christ. Let me, let me say that Paul, and I've said this before to you, but I want you to hear it because it's, I think it's important. The scriptures are point by point, word by word, critically important. Paul never writes a letter to shoot the breeze. He's always communicating something critically important. So if it's on the page, it's important. Even, even the location on the page is important. His letters are very intentional and full of gospel and the application of the gospel. Every book in the Bible is this way. It's part of God's grand plan to communicate to human throughout all of history his love for us. Each book reveals more and more of the story. So we should be able to find Christ in all of Scripture. And we do, don't we? Here we have in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, an exposition of the person of the gospel. An exposition of this God who became man. Let me read it for you. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's the person of the gospel. And it's smack dab in the middle of Philippians. Paul would not write a letter. He never did write a letter that didn't focus in on and emphasize Christ and his person. And here it is for us in this letter to the Philippians. All right, this is a, a record of the condescension of the God of the universe becoming one of us, taking on humanity, dying on a cross of all things for the sins of his people. So that you and I could have our sins forgiven and experience joy throughout eternity. This is the person of the gospel. And then I want you to turn to the next verse that's referenced in that gospel cir circle there in your outline. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Here I want to show you the application of the gospel. So the person of the gospel is found in Philippians 2. Now here's the application 
of the gospel, verses 7 through 11. <clears throat> but whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So here we have it, the application of this gospel. And what I mean by that is that the gospel requires us certain things. The first thing Paul says, if you embrace the, the person of the gospel, it means you must embrace him and not the world. You have a choice to make. You're either going to believe the promises of the world or you're going to believe the promises of God. You're going to either believe and follow Christ or you're going to believe and follow the world. You have a choice to make. This is the application of the gospel. If God is supreme, if God is all in all, we have a choice to make. Are we going to believe and follow him or not? You can't have it both ways, in other words, Paul is saying. Though many try, don't they? You've probably tried. It doesn't work, does it? You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. Never a comfortable thing. The application of the gospel is placing your faith and trust completely in Christ. All things else are considered in your mind rubbish, worthless in comparison to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Right? There's no self-promotion. There's no self-dependence. Uh, Authentic faith is a faith in the righteousness of Christ given to you by grace from God. A righteousness from God, not a righteousness of my own efforts. So here's the application of the gospel. So at the center of the book, with, with instructions in the front and behind it, we have the gospel, the person of the gospel and the application of the gospel. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and Philippians 3, 7 through 11. This is important to keep in mind. The center of Philippians, the center of Paul's heart, the center of our lives should be the gospel. That's why we have these big metal letters out in the lobby that say gospel-centered. Right? That is what we should be about. So now let's, let's expand to the next concentric circle and look at partnership in the book of Philippians. This, after all, has been basically the title of our sermon series, Joyful Gospel Partnership, keywords, but here let's focus on partnership. Partnership in the gospel in Philippians. Philippians, let's go back to chapter 1. There's, I want to start at the top underneath the word partnership, you have read Numbers chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. That's where it begins. It's that early, actually, that Paul tips his hand as to what he's going to be writing about. He says this in Philippians 1, 3 through 5. In the introduction of his letter, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And of course you know, because I've talked about it probably too many times, the word partnerships come from the Greek word koinonia. And there's five appearances of that word in this book. 
And three of them are translated partnership, and the others, part one partaken and one sharing. But this is, this is where the idea of partnership begins. It's in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, right in the introduction of his letter. He's telling them all exactly what he's going to be talking about. He, he produces this theme, introduces it right here, joyful gospel partnership. As we know, as I've said already, Paul was committed to preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen. His life, particularly after his conversion on the road to Damascus, was all about proclaiming the gospel. He says in chapter 1, verses 20, or yeah, 20 and 21, that he hopes that he, his life has been worth it for the cause of Christ. Look there, he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Christ has been his focus. This is where gospel partnership must begin, with Christ. The word partnership, of course, is translated from this word koinonia, and that word is also translated fellowship all over the New Testament. Fellowship and partnership in English come from the same Greek word, koinonia, okay? Now, that word is important here. The reason it's translated partnership in the, the book of Philippians is because of the theme of this letter, which is a participation in the Great Commission, in the cause of Christ. And so it's translated partnership. Paul isn't, when he talks about partnership or fellowship, he's not talking about potlucks or conversations about sports. He's talking about the critically important idea of self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. That is partnership. Let me say it again. A self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. That's what partnership means to Paul. That's what fellowship means to Paul. Gospel partnership is about personal participation in the Great Commission. What is your role in the Great Commission? In what ways, what exhibits, what examples are you going to give Christ when you stand before him one day that you followed and obeyed his Great Commission? Go and make disciples. Show me how you did it, Bob. Let's hear it. What are you going to say on that day? I ignored that one. Uh, that was the Great Commission. Paul is saying gospel partnership is a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. It's about personal participation in the Great Commission, the cause of Christ. It's a personal commitment to sacrifice whatever it takes to make much of Jesus in everything. It's an all-in mentality that Paul is describing here. The next appearance of this word Koinonia is found just two verses later in verse 7. He says this, It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They're partakers with me in grace. That word partakers is koinonia. Participation. Partners in the gospel. So how do you become a partaker of grace? If you were in Theology 101, what would be your answer to that question on the quiz? How do you become a partaker of grace? Well, 
It requires activity of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? He initiates your participation in grace. If you're a partaker in grace, it's because the Holy Spirit's done something. He regenerates your heart. He is the reason you're a partaker of grace. Grace is undeserved favor, and that comes from God. All right? You can't say you've earned grace. It's no longer grace. This is an act of sovereign grace, and it begins the moment you're regenerated. It's a, you're now a partaker of that grace. It's, and this partaking of grace begins a lifelong process of becoming like Jesus, doesn't it? As we grow in Christ, we become more and more aware of our need of this transforming grace on a daily basis and more and more involved in the cause of Christ, the Great Commission. I don't know if you've recognized this or not, but you're probably more interested in the Great Commission now than when you were, the day you were you became a Christian, right? You probably didn't know what the Great Commission was on that day. But now that you've walked with Christ for a few years, you know what that is, and you're probably more committed to it than you were. You ought to be. So the evidence of gospel partnership is also in this verse, chapter 1, verse 7. And what are they? A growing commitment to one another. It says, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the God. The, the Philippians cared about Paul. They were committed to him. They were committed to one another. That's evidence that you are a partaker of grace, your commitment to one another. So let's look at the next appearance of this word koinonia in Philippians. Find it in chapter 2, verse 1. Turn to chapter 2, verse 1, and I'll read it for you. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, so forth. So Paul brings this word up in connection to the Holy Spirit. He says, if, the, if you are connected to, if you're in particip participation with the Spirit, the following things will be true about you, and we'll get to those in a minute. But in order to be partakers with another, we must be partners with Christ. So if, we, if we're going to be partners in the gospel, we must be partners with Christ. This is what 1-7 is talking about. So chapter 2, verse 1 is directly connected to chapter 1, verse 7. In order to be a, in order to be participation with the Spirit, you have to first of all have had partake, be a partaker of grace. That makes sense to you. So, as you partake of grace, that means you've participated in the Holy Spirit, which will result in your participation in the gospel message. This is what Paul's thinking here. So it's it's union with Christ. Next, chapter three, verse ten. Turn there with me. Again, we're we're working through the the red numbers in the circle of partnership. Chapter 3, verse 10, also identifies our connection or participation with Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share, that word share is koinonia, share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. So this is the next usage of the word koinonia. One way that joyful gospel partners demonstrate partnership with Jesus is to know him. Look at the verse. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. One of the evidences of being a partaker of grace, participating in the Holy Spirit, is this. You know Christ. Do you know him? Do you really know Jesus? 
If you do, it's because you've been brought from death to life, which is what Paul says there in verse 10. You've been a partaker of grace. You've experienced the grace of God. That's why we know that you're a participant in Christ. So to be a gospel partner, you first must be partnered with Jesus Christ. You cannot be a gospel partner if you haven't been partnered with Christ. If you haven't participated in the grace of God, a partaker of grace. The Spirit does this at the the point of regeneration. This fellowship, this partnership with God will always result in partnership with other believers for the cause of Christ. So as you look at your life and you examine it in terms of gospel partnership and the effectiveness or the, the willingness to participate in the cause of Christ to be a partner in the gospel, do you see any signs that that is the case? Are there any signs in your life that you're a partner in the gospel message with Christ, with Paul, with one another in this church? What evidence would you point to? Is a good question of application. The final place this verse, this word is used, koinonia, is chapter 4, Verse 15. Turn there with me. Philippians 4, 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. There's, there's the outworking of partnership with Christ. There's the outworking of being a partaker of grace. You participate in the gospel. You participate with Christ, with the Holy Spirit, with other believers, with Paul, in the gospel. So it'll be a growing passion in your life, I guess we could say, from what we've learned in Philippians. And then I'm going to go back now up to the top of this partnership circle, and I'm going to show you um, some exhortations from the Apostle Paul, starting in verse Uh, 27 of chapter 1, you'll need to flip back there with me. Like I said, you're going to need a Bible today. Uh, Verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul's going to describe what gospel gospel partnership might look like. Okay? Are you there? Chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We spent a couple weeks on that back in the day. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. There's that partnership idea. Striving side by side for the faith of gospel. Partnership. Your manner of life. If you remember um, that phrase, let your manner of life, really has reference to citizenship. It has the idea of citizenship in there. Your manner of life ought to reflect your true citizenship. Are you a citizen of this planet or are you a citizen of heaven? Remember in chapter 3, verse 20, he says you are citizens of heaven. If you're a partner in the gospel, you're a citizen of heaven. Does your life reflect that? Let your life, what's he say? Be worthy of the gospel. Worthy of your citizenship where you truly reside. Remember Peter said we're strangers and aliens here. This isn't our home. 
I mean, when you go on vacation and stay in a hotel, you don't buy a new rug and, and buy a vacuum for your room. Why? Because it's not your home. You'll be home soon enough. You're staying there for the night. That's the same way we, we should be thinking about living here on this planet. This isn't our home. We're strangers and aliens here. We're visiting. We're sojourners. Let your manner of life be worthy of gospel partnership. Um, now let's look at the, um, well, let's look at some, I want you to look down at the, the verses. I've, I think they're in blue or purple or something, I can't tell, uh, in the partnership circle, 2, 5 through 8. 19 through 22, 25 through 30, and 317. Those are examples of joyful gospel partners. So Paul is exhorting us to, to join him in gospel partner ministry, to partake, to, well, I should say, to work out your partake, partaking of grace. He says, here's guys that have done it. Follow their example. And, of course, his first example is whom? In chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Jesus Christ. <laughs> if anybody ever demonstrated gospel partnership with Jesus Christ, he left heaven to come down here and share the good news. He humbled himself. He made himself nothing. He took on servanthood. He took on death. I would say that's partnership. That's all-in mentality. The next example he gives is found in verses, <clears throat> where is it here, 17 through 30. Um, 19, it says, through 22, 25 through 30. So turn to chapter 2, verse 17, and I want to show you something. This is now Paul using himself as an example. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul says here, okay, I'm going to use myself as an example. I emptied myself just like Jesus did. I've poured out myself so that you could hear the gospel. There's another example of gospel partnership. And then down to uh, verse 19, he brings up Timothy, who was well known in the New Testament church. And he talks about Timothy here for a few verses. Let me read those to you. I hope Lord Jesus send to you Timothy. Here's my next example. So that I too may be cheered by news from you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He's not concerned for his own. He's concerned for your welfare. That's evidence of gospel partnership, isn't it? To be others-oriented. For they all seek their own, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy. He's proven his worth. How a son with his father has served with me in the gospel. This is evidence. This is another example of gospel partnership. Does your life match Timothy's? Does it match Paul's? Does it match Christ's? This is living worthy of the gospel. Living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, like Jesus, Paul, Timothy, and then here at the bottom, Epaphroditus. And what a wonderful inclusion Epaphroditus was. He was one of them. They knew him. They knew his heart. They knew his love for the gospel and love for Christ and love for Paul and love for them. Which is why he went with the gift. Paul said, look at his life. Follow Epaphroditus' example. You want to be a gospel partner, look at the guy that came from your church. We have those people here at Sun Valley. Do you want to be a gospel partner? Aren't sure how to do it? Follow some sterling examples in our church. If, if you can't 
think on how it might work with Epaphroditus, Timothy, Paul, or Jesus. Look at some folks in this church who demonstrate gospel partnership, self-sacrificing vision. Now let's look at the largest circle on your page, the joyful circle. I want to, I want to show you how this whole thing ties into the book of Philippians. Remember, we've said that the theme of Philippians is joyful gospel partnership. It's one thing to know the gospel. It's one thing to participate in the gospel. It's another thing to do so joyfully. I mean, most of us can bear down, grit our teeth, try hard, not quit, and kind of just push through it. I mean, a lot of us live the Christian life that way, unfortunately. But it's not necessary or important or valuable. I mean, <laughs> think about it for a moment. How, how effective will a salesman be that doesn't believe in what he's selling? Uh, this vacuum's okay. It's like third on the list in consumer reports. Um, you can try it if you want. I'll let you do it for a day. No, that guy's not going to sell any vacuums. And how about the Christian who isn't joyful? The Christian who has no vision outside of himself. Well, what kind of a effect would that partner have in the Great Commission, making disciples? I would say zero. It's critical, as Jesus knew, as Paul knew, and probably you know, that a Christian be joyful. No one is going to buy a product from a sad sack. It's not going to happen. Eeyore is not a good salesman. And neither is a grouchy, depressed Christian. Let me read for you some things here from this book that emphasize the importance of your joy. Sun Valley Church. And I want to share for you six things, which are these um, references that have a red box around them. All right, I want to share six things that will rob you of your joy that you need to be aware of. Let me share with you Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Back in Philippians 1, this is the first thing that you need to be aware of. Gospel partner. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There's the clue. Where was Paul? What has happened to him? Imprisonment. All right? Chained to a soldier. Dependent on people's good gifts to keep him alive. A pretty bad situation. But he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There's his focus. There's his circumstances and focus. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial garden to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, they saw him. They said, if he can do it, we can do it. So they stepped forward boldly to share the gospel with their friends and neighbors. Some indeed preached Christ from envy and rivalry. So not only was he in prison, he had people in Rome who were undermining his ministry, calling Paul a loser. Why would you follow that guy? He's in prison. He's obviously done something wrong. So he had his bad circumstances. 
and he had no support from the local Christian community. Most of us would say, then forget it. But Paul was a joyful gospel partner, right? Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rival, out of goodwill, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and I will rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. <laughs> so what do we see here? The first thing that we see that can rob us of joy is a bad response, a, a wrong response to bad circumstances. That's the first thing that can rob you of your joy, a wrong response to bad circumstances. Paul's circumstances were horrible, but he had the right response to it. He was in prison. He had people talking about him badly, but he was confident in God's providence. God had put him there for a reason. He believed that he was sent to Rome in chains for the gospel, and so he could rejoice. So to avoid losing your joy in the Christian life, embrace your circumstances no matter what they are. Do you think that your circumstances are outside of God's providential control? Probably not. In fact, definitely not. And what about those people, even those who call themselves Christians, that make your life miserable? Do you think they're outside God's power? Are they doing something that he can't control or won't control? No. Because of Paul's gospel partnership perspective, nothing could rob him of his joy, no matter what his circumstances. He said, I will rejoice. And that's just not a stiff upper lip. He actually believed it. He believed his circumstances were joy-inducing. So he says there in verse 18 of chapter 1, only that in every way, whether pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. There's the first of six things. You see that there, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. The second red box is chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And here's the second thing that can rob us of our joy. Look how Paul addresses it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So the, the thing that can rob you of your joy immediately is selfishness. And you're saying, well, if I don't look out for myself, who, who will? Try this, God. God will. God will provide everything you need to be a joyful gospel partner. You don't have to defend yourself or provide for yourself in terms of your joy. Selfishness disrupts the unity of the church. It disrupts the unity of any home. It, it disrupts every human relationship, which is why it robs you of your joy. Instead of choosing to be selfish, we must choose to be others-oriented. Let each of you look to others' interests before your own. So to avoid losing your joy in the Christian life, be others-oriented. Be quick to meet their needs. Be humble like Jesus. 
Pursue what's best for them. And you'll be amazed at the joy that brings. Of course, if you're out for yourself, your joy is going to evaporate. What's the next one, the third? The third thing that can rob you of our joy, it's found in chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, there's a key word, obey. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more when I'm absent, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights in the world. What do lights shining in the world for? Bring light, right? It's, it's to, to bring the gospel. It's the, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what we're about. But you're not going to be able to be a light in the world if you're always grumbling and complaining and down in the mouth. So things that can rob you of your joy, disobedience, arguing, complaining. Disobedience to clear commands of Scripture. Arguing with one another, complaining about your circumstances, complaining about anything. See, joyful gospel partners must intentionally work the implications of the gospel into every single part of their lives. Their their family, their jobs, their school, their relationships, their social media, everything must reflect the gospel, must be others-oriented, must be focused on the main thing. So to avoid losing your joy in the Christian life, be sure to obey the Lord. Avoid complaining about your circumstances or anything. And keep from arguing with believers about petty things. Paul is giving us things that will interrupt your joy. He wants you to be joyful like God wants you to be joyful. Because only joyful gospel partners are effective gospel partners. The fourth thing that will interrupt our joy is found in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. In other words, he starts this conversation by saying, I want you to be happy. And then he gives us the example of what's going to kill your happiness. He goes, look out for those dogs, those evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, for, they, <clears throat> for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, uh, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecute the church, as to righteousness under the law, but whatever I gain, I count loss for the sake of Christ. Okay, so what is this thing we must avoid to maintain joy? False teachers of legalism. If you're trying to do a set of rules, if you're trying to keep a list of do's and don'ts, your joy will be gone your joy will be gone. And you don't want your joy gone. So be careful about your doctrine. Be careful on who you listen to that develops your doctrine. 
critical area of joy. We must be discerning people, gospel partners. We need to develop discernment in the Christian life, be able to recognize joy-robbing teachers. The more we grow in faith, the more powers of discernment grow as well. The burden of legalism is one of the main tools the enemy uses to rob us of our joy. Don't fall for it. We must be grace-driven people. So to avoid losing your joy in the Christian life, keep in mind that our relationship with God is based on grace. Grace. The fifth of six things that will rob us of our joy is found in in chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. Hopefully, the things I'm teaching you or preaching to you right now are becoming more and more familiar because they weren't a lot long ago I preached them to you, right? I might give you a break if you couldn't remember what was in chapter one or two, but three and four, man, that was just yesterday, right? Philippians four, two through nine, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus. This is how you stand firm. This is how you're gonna be a joyful gospel partner. Now, next verse, I entreat Yodia And I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. There's that idea of partnership again. These ladies have been partners with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, think on the following things. And he lists eight of them. So what are we talking about here? What is it that's going to rob you and me of our joy in this pursuit of the Great Commission in being joyful gospel partner? What's going to rob that? Disunity disunity. Have you experienced that ever? Either in home, at work, or in the church? Have you noticed how disunity just completely trashes your joy? Yeah, (laughs) that's why Paul addresses it. That's why it's at the end of the letter. It's critically important. Here's Paul's logic. In order to be joyful gospel partners, which is the objective of this letter, we must stand firm in the faith In order to stand firm in the faith, we must have meaningful and harmonious relationships with one another. We must pursue it with all of our hearts. In these nine verses here in Philippians 4, Paul gives five ways to strengthen harmonious relationships. I'm going to read them, but I want, if you want to engage them, you're going to have to go back and listen to the sermon that's attached to that passage. Always be joyful. All right, is a way to strengthen harmonious relationships. Always be joyful. Secondly, be reasonable with one another. Be the first to give in. Be the first to say, okay, it's your way. Be reasonable. Don't be anxious. Who's in control of your circumstances? Is it God? Yes. Think correctly. Philippians 4.8. And then practice being a Christian. Verse 9, Paul says, follow me. Follow my example. 
So Paul gives important tools to develop and maintaining harmony in Christian relationships in your home and in church and at work. So to avoid losing your joy in the Christian life, we must work hard on creating and maintaining harmonious relationships everywhere, home, church, school. Is that a focus of your life or are you just kind of lottie dying through life? Or do you actually work on creating and maintaining harmony in your relationships? It actually takes work. If you're not working at it, that'll explain to you why you've lost your joy. Friends, this book is absolutely wonderful for the Christian life, wonderful for the church. And then the sixth, the sixth and final thing that will rob you of your joy is found in verses 10 through 19. I'm not going to read those because we just went over those a couple weeks ago. But he's basically saying, I'm content. No matter what happens, no matter what comes my way, I'm, con- I'm completely content. Whether you sent the gift or didn't, it really doesn't matter. I, I'm th- so thankful that you did, but I'm content. So the, the thing that's going to rob you of your joy, friends, is discontentment. Is there, is there something in your life that you're discontent about? Your job? Your home, physical home? Your, your relational home? Your church? Your health? Are you discontent in any of these areas? I think this idea of contentment is one of Paul's greatest concerns for every believer because he knows if you're not content, your joy fades. When you're discontent, you're not a joyful Christian. When you're discontent, you're not an effective witness. You know, the gospel's true. I love Jesus, but I just can't stand my church. How's that fly? The gospel's true. I love Jesus. I just... My spouse is an idiot, or my job is ridiculous, or those things don't mesh. So Paul warns not to be discontent. To avoid losing your joy in the Christian life, we need to learn contentment. As Paul did, he says, I learned contentment. And, and this is what God does for those who are partakers of grace. He teaches contentment. He, he teaches all these things. We need to be confident in the providence of God as we experience. We need to be satisfied with what God provides providentially and unsatisfied with the world. We need to be separate from our circumstances and not reactionary to them. We need to be content in all things. And to do so, we need to be strengthened by God. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we need, of course, learn that contentment comes from being others-oriented. Friends, this is such a wonderful book. I hope you'll read and reread it. If it's on one of your um, things on your iPhone, I pray that you'll listen to it. Put it on your phone. Put it in your car. Listen to it. Re-listen to it. It's an amazing book. It's been so good for me. It's been an encouragement to my heart, to my life, to be able to see God working out his plan at Sun Valley Church, demonstrating many of you who have actually committed to gospel partnership, to joyful gospel partnership. I've been wonderfully encouraged by it all. Let's pray and thank God for the time he's allowed us in this book.
Father, we do give you praise and glory for the wonderful blessing that this letter has been to us at Sun Valley Church over the past year. Thank you that we are uh, here because of grace. Thank you that you work out all these things in our lives for your glory and our good. I pray, Father, that if there be people in the room who have yet to commit themselves to being participants in the cause of Christ, who have yet to commit themselves to be um, partners in the gospel, that you would draw their hearts, deepen their understanding of your love for them, so that they will commit themselves to this lifelong, joyful journey of following the commission of Christ to his church. Bless us as a church as we continue to demonstrate our commitment to the, the Great Commission. Uh, bless us with joy. Bless us with new converts. Bless us with harmonious relationships. Bless us with contentment. Oh God, we are just overjoyed at all these things we've learned from this short letter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>